Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on July 31st, 2018 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was Payback. And it's clearly been way too long since we've had him back here, so please welcome to the Mosquito stage, Kevin Gallagher. I had some unique challenges when I graduated from college. Uh, I was very, very, very gay and very, very, very closeted. Uh, So I did what other young men in my situation did back in uh, the 80s. I went into banking. Uh, And I had it all, you know, corner office, three-piece suits, uh, you know, summers in P-Town, a black Saab turbo, Because, you know, in the 80s, the role models for being a gay man were uh, Freddie Mercury, Liberace, uh, uh, the village people, although although everyone really does have a favorite village person, don't they? Yes, it's either the sailor or the construction worker or the cowboy. Um, But even a gay neophyte like me knew that there was something not quite right about one of my very first relationships. Uh, our first date involved him creeping up behind me and flashing his big blue lights. Yes, this is how I met Officer Duncan. Uh, Officer Duncan was tall, good-looking, dark wavy hair, uh, clearly poured himself every morning into his uniform to provide maximum tightness in all the right places. Uh, He had sunglasses and uh, a mustache. Uh, Seemed like a nice guy, but, you know, he also seemed like a porn star. Because, you know, when you're closeted in the 80s, everyone sort of looks like a porn star uh, to you. But like everybody else who's ever been pulled over for a ticket, you know, my heart's pounding out of my chest, my hands are shaking. I'm looking in my side mirror, and I'm watching him kind of swagger up to the car. And I thought, wow, you're kind of hot. And then it's like, no, 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 no. It's never hot. The person arresting you is never hot. Like, lesson number one. I met Officer Duncan again on the same street at the same speed. Uh, I was a little surprised myself uh, to see my own village person uh, pull up again behind me. Um, I do think there are some roads that are mismarked for speed, but I'll just keep that thought to myself. Uh, But I thought for a second, I wonder if he has, like, a crush on me. And he's shy, and he's a cop, and so, like, this is the only way he can meet me, is just keep pulling me over for speeding. Uh, And so we did our usual dance, and uh, like our first date, you know, he stuck me with the bill uh, at the end of the night. Um, But the third date, my mother actually came with us. I was bringing my mother to Mass at church, and she said, can we go a little faster, please, because I don't like to be late for church. And as Officer Duncan pulled up behind me, uh, uh, my mother got out of the car and said, I will walk the rest of the way, uh, because you know how I hate being late for Mass. But it was the fourth time, the fourth day, that I thought, oh, my God, like, what is happening to me? I thought, am I in an abusive relationship and aren't even aware of it? Uh, Is there some weird, closeted, gay profiling going on in my town? Uh, Well, 
the sheen on my fantasy was beginning to fade a bit. And four tickets and 11 points later, I lost my license for three months. I sold the Saab, uh, which I think was a huge part of the problem. I don't think anyone in their 20s should have anything with turbo in the name of it. Uh, and things went fine till I was about 29. And all of a sudden, I was on yet another road that was marked incorrectly for speed. <laughs> and up comes my village person behind me. And I thought, this is it. We are ending things, you and I. He gave me the ticket, and I said, this is payback. Like, instead of being the hunted, I am going to be the hunter. And I decided I was going to take him to traffic court. Now, you'd be surprised to know that someone who has this many moving violations has actually never been to traffic court. And I didn't know that if the cop doesn't show up, they throw the ticket out. So I'm scanning the courtroom. No Officer Duncan, no Officer Duncan, no Officer Duncan. No. Could Kevin Gallagher please approach the bench? So I go up and the judge reads my charges and she confirms that uh, the officer is not present. And she said, do you have anything you'd like to say for yourself? And I said, well, yes, Your Honor, I actually do. I said, I am a very respond, I, I am a good driver. I am, I am a good driver a lot of the time. And, and I just think there's something malevolent going on with Officer Duncan because he has been pursuing me for six years and I would like the court to somehow intervene in this process. And no sooner had I finished saying that, that I got a tap on the shoulder and I turned around and there was the smiling porn star himself. The judge, for some reason, freaked out. Like, she started skewering me in front of everybody. How dare you waste this court's time and the taxpayer's money, blah, 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 blah. You know, uh, and then she goes on. She said, you know, if there are other deplorables in this courtroom today uh, that, that uh, think they're going to get out of a ticket, like Mr. Gallagher thinks he's going to get out of a ticket, then you might as well leave my courtroom right now. And about half the room got up and left. And I thought, you know, I'm sure they're not deplorables like I'm not. I think they just knew she was in a really bad mood and it wasn't going to be a good afternoon for them either. So that afternoon, after I paid my fine, uh, Officer Duncan and I split up for good. Uh, I, I eventually came out and started living more in reality rather than fantasy. Uh, I decided to get a real partner instead of a village person. And uh, I now follow the law. So there you go. Thank you. Alan is a first-time storyteller at the Mosquito. Alan. Uh, but this is a, a, a story uh, I know only too well. Uh, and it concerns a watch. And more specifically, it concerns my father's watch, a 1962 Omega Seamaster automatic. Um, I cherished that watch in large measure because it was the one object I inherited, one object of consequence, when he passed away. I was five years old at the time, and I have very few memories of my father. And the last one I have um, is of my father, dad, being rolled out on a gurney to the hospital. We're holding hands, and a few inches above his fingers 
is the Omega Seamaster automatic. Uh, as I said, he died when I was five, and about five years after that, um, I found myself being uh, dispatched to a boarding school in Switzerland by my mother. Uh, she had reinvented herself after uh, Dad died and became an academic. And she was doing some research and uh, test driving her third husband uh, while doing so. And uh, it made sense uh, to put me in this boarding school in a small village above Lausanne. Um, I think it's slightly unfair to say that she warehoused me at the school because I was eager to go. The village in question was the place where my family, when my father was alive, would assemble at Christmas time. And uh, so it had the magic for me of, uh, of Disney World, which had actually just opened in that year, it was 1971. Um, Disney World on steroids. It was a place when my family was a family, my father was alive, we skied, uh, I ate chocolate, he bought me Legos. When I went to Switzerland, back to the place where I was so happy. I was eager, in fact. And I asked for only one thing. I pestered my mother to allow me to take the Omega Seamaster automatic with me. And she hesitated, and I argued, and we, uh, uh, eventually she ceded to the request, and so I went to this boarding school for the year with, with, the, with the watch. Um, it offered comfort, it offered solace, uh, it had a radioluminescent dial, it was painted with um, uh, a green paint that no longer is used because it, uh, it's radioactive. <laughs> uh, and when I was uh, homesick or anguished, and there was a lot to be anguished about, I would hide under the covers and uh, uh, look at my father's watch and uh, be comforted by its iridescent glow. Despite the fact that it's called an Omega Seamaster Automatic, it was not waterproof. And so this school, which is itself a moth story uh, that I can't tell right now, uh, required us to take cold showers every morning. And so I would take the watch off, put it under my pillow, um, endure the daily ablutions, and then go back up to the, to the dorm room. About two months in, uh, I did that, came back, and the watch was gone. Uh, I panicked, I looked around, uh, but I knew instantly what had happened. And what had happened is the focus of the story, of the payback. What had happened was Caesar Augustus Viana III, my roommate, my nemesis, a Filipino kid who was two years and 50 pounds uh, older and bigger than I. He had tormented me in all sorts of ways, the most dramatic but not the most uh, painful. Uh, used the popularity of the then hit musical Jesus Christ Superstar. I was one of five Jews in the school, and so he and his henchman, Paul, decided to tie me up to a bedpost and whip me to the sound of the 39 lashes. Now, 
it wasn't a physical abuse, it was an act of humiliation. And one of the few things I remember about Caesar from that time is this rictus of pleasure that would go over his face whenever he lifted the belt and uh, brought it down to the soundtrack of a song that is simply, uh, I'm not gonna uh, force you to hear my rendition of it, a accounting of a whipping of the 39 lashes. That was fine, the stuffing pieces of bread with hot sauce and forcing me to eat them was fine, but the theft of the watch was unacceptable. He denied it, of course, and after about two or three days, Paul, his henchman, confessed that Caesar had urged him, goaded him into throwing it out the window into the snow. Oh boy, okay. Anyway, um, that began my search for Caesar. And it took about 40 years to track him down. Um, the internet helped. Some US postal inspectors helped. A, uh, a district attorney for the Southern District helped. I discovered that Caesar had grown into an international swindler and con man. And I uh, eventually screwed up the courage to fly out to California after he completed his 36-month sentence at Lompoc State uh, Federal Penitentiary. And the first two times I met with him, I was perfectly comfortable confronting him about his crimes as an adult, uh, his drug running in Oslo, his uh, theft of millions of dollars from unsuspecting would-be entrepreneurs. I could not confront him about the past. Until the third session, when we, uh, we got together, he had no recollection, by the way, that we had even roomed together or so he said, and an I put an alarm in my phone that said, remember the 10-year-old, and that's when I confronted him. Uh, he denied uh, that he had done any of these things, as he had denied he had done any of the crimes that he was convicted for, and um, I don't think I'll ever convince him to uh, to acknowledge his crimes, both to adults and to the 10-year-old I was. But I found it liberating to confront him after so many years. And so the, the question for tonight is, I believe, um, was it karma, revenge, or reward? To which I answer, yes. Um, my menace became my muse. And in many ways, a muse became a mitzvah. Uh, he helped bring together my relationship with my son, who was bullied, and played out in positive ways in all sorts of uh, domains. So that's my story of payback. Next storyteller up. Get ready to welcome. First-time storyteller, Susan, thank you for the phonetics, Wisniewski. Is that correct? Susan Wisniewski? Wisniewski? Okay, I screwed it up. Sorry. I never knew or wanted, never knew that I wanted or would ever receive a full life-size poster of Tony Romo, signed by him, given to me my name to Susan. I never, like, really? 
And I never knew I would become a Dallas Cowboy fan. But I had to, because my daughter became a Tony Romo friend. And she was attending his games in his family box. And so I had to join in and root for the Cowboys and relearn the football game. And I never knew that I would become a West Point Army football fan. But I had to, because that's where my son went to college. And I had to go to two of those games on the frickin' coldest days of the year. And in the last row, one time, with the whole family. Yeah. Um, and I never knew that I could come to love the Army and appreciate the good that's connected there. And I never knew my son would go back and teach there for three more years when he was in the middle of his, or ending of his career, who knows where he is right now. Anyway, yeah, I didn't see that coming. So, I was a rebellious teenager, like every good teenager. I was raised in the heart of the Midwest, Lincoln, Nebraska, and I hated, with a vengeance, football. <laughs> I hated Go Big Red. I hated the color red. I hated seeing my drunk parents getting carted off to the football games by my older brother or sister in the family Winnebago. And I also hated that they sold the Winnebago before I got a chance to drive it. <laughs> but that's a different story. So in Nebraska, it's not an option to be a football fan. It's a requirement. It's something that comes with being born there. And I rebelled against that 180 degrees as hard as I could, like, oh, hell no. And I hated from every moment past that, because I, I did get around in the United States and um, traveled in Europe when I was in college. And I always hated telling people where I was from. Because in the 70s, the Cornhuskers did pretty good. They were like, you know, in their, hit their stride. I could almost remember the coach's name, but I, I just can't. Osborne, okay. Osborne, Tom Osborne. Yeah. And so, you know, I tell people I'm from Nebraska, and like, go Big Red. I'm like, oh, shit, here we go again. <laughs> no, don't do it. Yeah. So, when I met my husband in grad school, I really fell in love with him because he was a musician and a scientist, and he wrote his own songs, and I loved all the songs he wrote for his previous girlfriends. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was sold hook, line, and sinker. And I also loved him because he didn't like any sports. He didn't care. He didn't want to watch anything. It was not part of his life. But what I didn't realize was when we moved from New Hampshire to West Virginia, and he started working for the federal government, and he was working with real people and real men, 
that the male bonding code required him to become a fan of sports. <laughs> and he started watching football. <laughs> Really? He actually did go through a boxing phase, but I shut that sucker down. <laughs> it's like, not happening in my house. <laughs> go to a bar if you want to watch boxing. Not happening in my house. So, I have to realize that I'm pretty sure that God is a football fan and that she's just trying to take care of us all and make sure we all get it. Jerry. Hey. So uh, inspired by this mosquito, I started uh, a similar, almost the same kind of thing up in Newton, a story slam about four years ago, and uh, last November, we did something I don't think anybody has ever done, which is, it was coming up to an election, and we got, we invited all the candidates who were running for public office, for mayor, city council, and school committee, to come and tell a story. No campaigning, no speeches, just come and tell a story. And a lot of them were terrified, but it was a great, great night. So that night, there was 18 stories told, 17 candidates, two for mayor, city council, whatever, and me. So I'm going to tell you the story I told that night the way I told it. So I'm not a religious guy, I, not at all. But I was raised Catholic. So I'm going to tell my story in the form of a confession. Bless me, candidates, for I have sinned. It has been about 50 years since my last confession. And these are my sins. I've been a sleazy, dishonest weasel. Now, last spring, Mayor Seti Warren announced he was not going to run for re-election. Bam! All of a sudden, there's a mayor's campaign going on. A couple days later, I got a call from uh, Scott Lennon. Now, I've known Scott for three years. He came to our first Story Slam and told the story. He's a great guy. And uh, he says he wants to meet me for coffee. So I meet him for coffee. He says, Jerry, I'm going to run for mayor. I was like, whoa. He says, will you support me? I said, absolutely. You'd, you'd make a great mayor, Scott. And I meant that. So a couple of nights later, a couple of days later, uh, I get a call from, uh, from Ruth Ann Fuller. Now Ruth Ann, she had a cameo role in one of our plays, we run this theater company. And I love Ruth Ann, she's great. She says, Jerry, I'm running for mayor, will you support me? I said, absolutely, you would make a great mayor. And I meant that. <laughs> and then as soon as I said it, I realized, what have I done? And that's, and I, I, but I didn't know how to get out of it. And kind of like a little kid, I thought, well, maybe it'll just go away. But it didn't go away. So the next thing that happens is I get a call from my really good friend, Shauna. Now, Shauna and I, we do all kinds of things. I rope her into my stuff. She ropes me into her stuff. She calls me up, Jerry! That's how she starts every phone call. And uh, she says, I'm all in for Scotland and for mayor. I'm, you and me, we're going to run his uh, campaign kickoff event at Dungarren's uh, week from Friday. I'm like, no, 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 Shauna. I, I don't want anything to do with this. She goes, no, no, you wrote me in that thing two months ago. It's payback time. you got to do this. And I, 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 don't know. I don't know how to say no to Shauna. So all of a sudden, I'm now like organizing this guy's thing, but I'm supporting her. This is really bad. So the day comes, and I'm like, I'm 
fretting. And so, you know, this restaurant, all these people turn up, and a bunch of them, my neighbors who I know, and they're supporting this guy, and, I'm, and it's like, some point, they start taking pictures, and I, I run to the men's room, and I hide in the men's room. <laughs> like, that is how pathetic this is, so I'm not in the pictures. Somehow, I dodge the bullet, I don't get busted. And a couple of weeks later, we come down here, we come every summer to Wellfleet, we spend the summer camping at Payne's Campground, Whew, dodge that bullet. And I forget all about it. Labor Day comes, we go back up to, you know, to Newton, and uh, a week or two later, I come home from work, there's a big Ruth Ann Fuller sign on my front lawn. I was like, oh shit, I come in, <laughs> and I say to my wife, where, where did you, where this? She said, oh, she said, oh yeah, I called the campaign and asked for a lawn sign. I said, you know this whole thing with, with, with me and the car. She goes, Jerry, that's your thing. I told you I'm supporting Ruth Ann. I was like, oh, I, and at this point, I can feel the walls are closing in. So the next thing that happens, I get a call from Ruth Ann. She says, I'm coming to your neighborhood on Friday, and I'm going to be walking door to door, and I really, really would like if you would come and introduce me to your neighbors. And I try to beg off, and I try to make excuses, and I, 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 okay. So now, like, I got a knot in my stomach. I, I can, I'm going to be knocking on doors of people who are supporting the other guy, who know that I, and I'm just, this is really bad. So we go out, and, I, and for like an hour and a half, I'm looking over my shoulder. I am, like, terrified. I'm a, a complete mess. We get to the end of it, and uh, I'm about to leave, and all of a sudden she goes, oh, hold on a second, pulls out a camera, snaps a picture. I don't think anything of it, and I leave. Well, the picture goes up on our campaign website. Out campaigning with Jerry Riley in Upper Falls. Next morning, ding. Scott Lennon, I answer the phone. Jerry, you're supporting Ruth Ann? Didn't you look me in the eye and tell me that you were gonna support me? I am really disappointed. Well, I, I felt about this big. I felt like a, a shit, you know, like a weasel, because I am a weasel. And, uh, you know, I, I get no excuse. I treated him badly. I treated Ruth Ann badly. Um, you know, what can I say, I'm a weasel. But this is my confession, so I have to get all my sins on the table. Now, where's Matt Miller? Matt, you know when I told you you would make a great school committee guy? I meant that. But uh, you'll probably, if you don't know already, find out your opponent's lawn sign is on my front lawn. So I'm sorry, Matt. I'm sorry, Gail. I'm sorry, Ruth Ann, and I'm sorry, Scott. I'm a weasel. Now, to the rest of you people out here, you're all you candidates, you might win, you might lose, but you'll probably run again. So the one message I want you to take away from this is if you ever run for office, do not ever ever, ever ask me for an endorsement because I'll give it to you and it'll be totally worthless. And in the words of the great Lyle Lovett, I love everybody, especially you. I love everybody, especially you. If I endorse you, you'd know I'll be true. I love everybody, especially you. <laughs>
So uh, in this courtroom, there'll be a judge somewhere and there'll be a jury somewhere, maybe. I don't know how it really works with small claims. Thank you. Um, and I might have to focus on two people and they will be the plaintiffs. Uh, their names are Richard and Peggy. So I might just pick out somebody who's a victim who will immediately be guilty of something that you never thought you would ever do. Uh, but I need to focus on that, so I'm looking around to see who they'll be. But anyway, I'll figure that out. Um, so I'm going to explain why I'm here. Uh, about a year ago, I was deciding that my life was really so wonderful that uh, it was probably time to meet somebody. So, because it was getting too wonderful and been a long time since I've been in a relationship and maybe I could handle it or maybe it would make things even better or it would make things worse and then I would know that's not really what I want. Uh, but I didn't want to go through the trouble of finding one and um, as one gets older, perhaps people can relate here, older than 25 in my case, um, you know, you don't get that many dates. So um, the old-fashioned way is the internet. Um, and uh, I've been there. And um, it's such a time suck, and it's so awful. And I'd, I'd really ha rather have my teeth drilled, really, uh, or pulled. Um, so I, I read an article in the New York Times and, and it was about a couple, and here, the, here we go, Here's the, we're naming names today here, people. Richard and Peggy Wollman, W-O-L-M-A-N. <laughs> the Wollman couple, Mr. and Mrs. Wollman, have been married happily, blissfully, for 50 years. They reside, well, they were residing in Newton somehow, then they were in Mashpee, they closed the office in Newton. When I met them, they had been lauded by this New York Times journalist who was supposed, must have been paid, that they were running a dating agency. I didn't say for desperate older women, but I think that was their specialty. Uh, and I made the mistake of saying that I would pay them to come to my home to interview me to see if I wanted to hire them. The, the, amount, the check that I wrote that day was not going to be applicable to the entire fee for the program desperate. So uh, they came to my home. This was about uh, sometime last, late last summer. Uh, my right hand was in a, in a cast. I, I looked gorgeous because I had fallen on a tennis game. But um, they were very nice and they took my check and, and they were the only game in town. And the New York Times, right? They had credentials. They haven't been on Oprah, but they have lots of credentials. <laughs> People, but when I asked them, was there somebody I could call who had actually paid this enormous amount of money and maybe not met the man or woman of their dreams, but at least had felt like they were on the way to exploring their dating options in some way. Um, they, the program was very extensive and they offered many, many services for this enormous amount of money that I paid them plus the initial amount of money that they charged me to come to my home so I could see if I wanted to pay them more money <laughs> without calling anybody to talk to anybody that had ever paid them this money or had any 
Uh, so, um, so anyway, um, weeks went by and Richard, I, I, the first thing was you fill out a spiritual profile, a questionnaire, it's many pages, extensive. Richard, by the way, teaches psychology at Harvard, adult education school of Harvard, but nonetheless. Um, I knew some people who knew Peggy in a theater group and I thought she was a good person, so I, and all the reviews were about Peggy being so wonderful and really helping people and they offered all kinds of things like networking and, and, and their Rolodex of, of, of eligible people and someone who would take me to these amazing events and they would suggest conferences for geniuses in, 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 in Illinois that I would, where I would go and be, meet people, I don't know. They had ideas. So um, here we are now. Um, Richard and Peggy were entirely predatory, are, are very bad people, don't hire them. Um, I don't care, uh, they, they said they would give the money that if I met somebody too soon, it was a six month program, they would give the extra money to their charity of choice, uh, Smile Foundation for Children. I thought that's really nice, that's lovely. I met Peggy for lunch on our last encounter and I said, Peggy, this is really not working. Richard is sending me three people every month that are not what I'm asking for. He knows me spiritually, but he, it's not working. Uh, I don't need somebody to tell me how to floss my teeth or how to write an email to a date. I don't need all these services. I didn't need a stylist. I didn't need a, a nutritionist. I didn't need a makeup consultant. I didn't need... Uh, I just want you to do the numbers, get me numbers, send me people, send me people, send me men, send me numbers. I'll, I'll, I know how to write to them, I know how to meet them, I know how to talk to them, I don't need... Um, she said, you know, I said, do you know anybody at all that you could introduce me to? She said, no. Um, <laughs> she said, but we, after your, the program is over, you know, four years later, we just met somebody to introduce somebody to. I said, that's really good. I said, I want the charity to get the rest of my money. And she said, well, that's up to us. <laughs> Story's over now. Please welcome to the stage, kick off the second act, Katie. Katie. I think the sweetest type of payback is the unexpected one. It catches you by surprise. It just, the scenario unfolds beautifully before you. I don't think it gets any sweeter than that. I was raised Catholic and in the Catholic religion when a child turns 15, they make their sacrament of confirmation. And in order to be confirmed, they have one to two years of religious education. They need to pick a sponsor, which is typically a favorite aunt or uncle, and then they need to pick a patron saint. And the patron saint's name becomes their confirmation name. So about 20 years ago, my daughter was 15. It was her time to make her confirmation. So she'd done the, the classes. She picked my sister as her sponsor. Now it became time to pick a name. Well, my daughter wanted a different name. So she went through my mom's saint book and she decided to choose Saint Cloud. So I think there was a contest in the class that year because one of the boys picked Saint Wolfius and there actually is a Saint Cloud and there's a Saint Wolfius. So now we're ready for the service and it's about three weeks before we're supposed to do this and I get a call from the woman who is in charge of the education program at the church. By the way, she's not very nice. So she... <laughs> 
So she tells me that my daughter's not going to be allowed to be confirmed because they have decided her name's inappropriate. So I said, well, is St. Wolfius getting confirmed? Because I think that's, you know, kind of the same. And she said, your daughter cannot be confirmed. We've decided that St. Cloud is not appropriate. So I get off the phone with her and I call the pastor of my church and set up a meeting with him for the next day. I bring my mom as backup because she knows everything about the Catholic religion. So she comes with me and as I walk into the office, the Monsignor's sitting and this not nice woman is smirking behind him. And I'm like, oh, this isn't gonna go well. So we started talking, he started right in with St. Cloud, Minnesota. I said, well, St. Cloud, Minnesota could have been named after St. Cloud. I think it's okay. And I said, what about St. Wolfius? He goes, we're only talking about your daughter. She needs to do what she's told, and she should take the name Teresa. I go, well, that's not going to happen. So he dug his feet in, and he was just being really stubborn. And so I said to him, you know, should I just run home to my mom's house and get her saints book? Perhaps you need to get reacquainted with the saints. Well, as you can imagine, the negotiations went down the tubes after that. So... I went home and talked to my daughter, and I said, what do you want to do? I said, um, you can't get confirmed if you want to be St. Cloud. And she says, you know what, it's not fair. I said, I agree. She said, St. Wolf, I said, oh, yeah, St. Wolfius is getting confirmed. <laughs> so she said, um, well, this is really important. I said, okay, I want to support you, um, so give me some time to figure out what I'm going to do. So at that time, my daughter went to parochial school in the next town. They also had a Catholic church. So I called the pastor of that church, who also happened to be the principal at the parochial school, so I called him, explained the situation. When he was done laughing, he said, uh, of course your daughter can get confirmed in our church, but unfortunately she just missed the last ceremony, so she'll have to wait until the spring. But he goes, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. Have her just show up for rehearsal, then she can come to the ceremony, and she doesn't have to go through all that. I know she's done everything she's supposed to do. So that kind of gave us some time to let go, because I get really frustrated at what I think is injustice and not fair play. So now it's the next spring, and we have the ceremony. We're all at the church, and the children come in, and they line up. Who's presiding over this ceremony? The Monsignor from my church. <laughs> so my relatives were all freaking out, because we don't know what's going to happen. So the kids are all lined up, and the Monsignor's going down the row. And my daughter's near the end, and I'm thinking, uh, what's going to happen? So sure enough, he gets to my daughter, and he says to her, what name have you picked? And she smiles, and she goes, St. Cloud. And so I can see his face, and it's contorting, and it's red, and he's getting really angry. So then he points his finger at her, and he's like, what did you just say? Well, my sister, who's her sponsor, puts her hands on her shoulder, leans forward, looks him right in the eye, smiles very sweetly, and said, you heard her, St. Cloud. <laughs> So, St. Cloud it was, and you know, I couldn't have orchestrated this. I couldn't, this only happens in the movies. I mean, th this, this was just perfect. I mean, this was divine payback. Thank you. go. Next storyteller is Michael Doherty. Doherty. I'm going to apologize up front if my wife gets called up to tell her story. Uh, that's some payback for me. Um, last year I, I was in the story slam here to, uh, and lost to uh, Auschwitz Holocaust survivor story. 
that was outstanding, and I don't mind at all losing to that, but I know when there's a Catholic payback story, you're gonna probably <laughs> lose there as well. <laughs> but, so in thinking about uh, topics for tonight, payback is a really hard story choice to, to come up with something that doesn't make you sound mean or vindictive. Um, so I'm gonna go for the reward. So with an investment, you get a reward later on, and that's a type of payback. And the reward, I wanted this story to revolve around Wellfleet and things that happen here in summertime, and surfers, and skateboarders, and birds, and sand, and sun, and so forth, and how beautiful this place is. And one of the things that you notice on the ponds, for instance, is the herring moving out of Gull Pond into Herring Pond to the estuary, down to the Great Island Reserve where the striped bass feed on them, and so forth. And I was fishing on that horrible little uh, causeway there one time and watching ospreys dive in and catch fish where I could catch none. And the osprey, um, when it dives in and catches fish, it dives from about 30, feet, 30 yards up straight down, talons forward, and grabs the fish underwater, flies out of the water, and orients the fish underneath them headfirst under the head of the bird. It's really, truly spectacular to watch. If you've never seen an osprey feed, it's really fascinating. The cool thing about it from my point of view is it orients the fish under it in a manner like a surfer or a skater stands on a board. So you're either gonna be a conventional stance, left foot forward, or you're gonna be a goofy stance, right foot forward. And uh, that betrays some part of your brain that is lateralized, either your dominant right hand or your language dominance or something like that. It betrays dominance in this bird brain that suggests a very sophisticated animal to switch and stand and fly with the fish back to its nest. And um, then at the nest, it gets brutal. The ostrich basically bites the head off first and then feeds the rest of the body to the fledglings. It's really, that's beyond the story, but in any case. <laughs> um, what interested me was, well, had anyone ever looked at this stance preference for the osprey? And it turns out no one has. So I had some friends and I looked through hundreds and hundreds of pictures of osprey online and classify whether or not they're goofy foot or conventional stance in their orientation for catching fish. And it turns out, this is so cool, it turns out that the osprey have the exact ratio of conventional stance left foot forward, holding the fish, to skateboarders and surfers. It's 65% left forward, 35% goofy foot. So the reward for Wellfleet is when you look up at the osprey feeding around the ponds here, that now you know that they have a stance just like the surfers and skaters. Thank you. Eric J, welcome Eric J to the stage. This story begins with my ex-fiance leaving me. And she knew I was gonna be gone that day, 
So I left my apartment early in the morning and I came back that night. I was carrying a bag of laundry that I had dropped off in the morning and I opened the door and the, the apartment's pretty empty. She took all her stuff and a lot of my stuff and the only thing is the dog is staring back at me. He's still there, which is kind of curious because it's her dog. <laughs> and, you know, he kind of imprinted himself on me, and I understood, you know, I still have him. You can see me walking around town with him. He just turned 13 this week, so mazel tov to him. And um, <laughs> anyway, I'm sitting there, and I realized that the reason she left me the dog is because if she took him, she knew I'd come after her, and she didn't want me to come after her. So I sit on the floor, there isn't really any place else to sit, start unpacking the laundry out of the bag, and I start thinking, I'm optimistic. Because, you know, Daisy was my punishment for all the bad things that I did to Carol, and Carol was my reward to all the all the bad things Sabrina did to me, and I could keep going back that way all the way to high school, but I only have five minutes. And right then I pull a football jersey out of my bag, which I still wear from time to time, even though it's from college. And that reminds me of the time that I get, got stabbed in college. And the night that I got stabbed was kind of a weird night because there was a fire in the dorm, and I was out in the quad in a robe and towel, and my date comes along, it's time to go to this show, and I can't get back into the dorm. So I was like, fuck it, I'll just go to the show in a robe and towel, because that's like what you do in college. <laughs> so I went with her, and it was, it was Jane County in the electric chairs. Does anyone remember? Okay, so a few people remember that. Those that don't, it was kind of a raucous, very hardcore punk band, and it was getting very violent. And... Um, my date was probably about 90 pounds, and she was standing in front of me at the front of the stage, and we were really getting slammed into. And it was really, it's just this one guy kept slamming into us. So I turn around, and I shove him, and he goes down on the floor, and he gets up. I notice he's a kid I know from the football team. And he smiles, and I thought, like, you know, oh, we'll give him a big hug, you know. And he gets up, and he takes out a knife, and he comes at me. And I kind of dodge out of the way, and he just kind of grazes me. I mean, I might be underselling it a little because I did have a visible scar until a couple years ago, but it, nothing terrible. And, you know, I had to go to the hospital, and I had to get a couple of stitches. And, you know, once they saw I wasn't, it wasn't life-threatening, they let me sit there for a while, as they do in the hospital. And while I was sitting there, I started thinking about, you know what, this is payback from when I tried to poison this kid when I was seven years old. And people told me, like, do not tell this story because people will think you're a little psycho. So I should say that, like, we didn't poison him. And part of the proof is that, you know, he, it, we were in class with him every day and we ate lunch with him every day, right? So we had plenty of chances to do him in. So it was more about coming up with an elaborate scheme to poison him. So I had a chemistry set. And I noticed there were a lot of like things in the chemistry set that said we're poison. And like in the 70s, who the hell knows what they were? They could have been radioactive too. And um, so we thought like, oh, we'll just pour some of these things together and mix them together and we'll give it to him and tell him, you know, oh, this is a new vitamin supplement to put in your orange juice or something. And so we do that and then we're like, well, now we can't get the packaging right. We can't get anything that looks professional. So then, and I, and I do not approve of this next move, we took like some putty and put it in his desk at school with a note saying, this is your mother and I lost my house keys, please make an imprint of the keys. And 
so that I can, I don't even know if you can do that. But these were like simpler times. My brother, when he was 10 years old, like made a copy of my dad's car keys, no questions asked. He just walked into the locksmith and he used to drive my dad's Oldsmobile around the neighborhood when my dad wasn't at home, right? So, of course, you know, the teacher finds out about this and she comes down the aisle and she's like, who wrote this note? And she comes to me and she says, this is really neat handwriting and your handwriting's really sloppy, so it can't be you. But, I guess I still felt guilty enough that while I was sitting there waiting to get someone up that night, that came back to me and I understood. And years later, when I was sitting alone in the apartment, like wondering what was going to come next, that's also kind of why I felt optimistic. The next storyteller is Betsy Miller. So this is a definitely revenge story. Um, on a safari in uh, Zambia in 2015, we went out on the morning uh, Land Rover ride and uh, running towards us was a, um, what is it? I've forgotten. <laughs> What's the little animal that's got? Hyena, the hyena was running towards us with the lion's head in his mouth. So a hyena is not a very big animal and usually gets pushed way off to the side, um, ends up eating the leftovers. They clean up. They're very good at cleaning up. And he's got the king of the jungle in his mouth and he's going, look at me, look at me. And he came right towards us, and we thought, and we felt, and our guide said, he's using us as a blind to protect himself, like he's beside our Land Rover to protect himself. So people who had good cameras or who were really on it got these excellent pictures. And then we went around and they were on walkie-talkies, and we were looking at uh, the remains from the night before in different places um, where an antelope had been eaten or where um, uh, you know, lions were, had been reported. And we came upon two major big male lions lying in the shade, asleep. And our guide went up to within like 12 feet of one of them, and he said, it's okay, it's okay, everybody. This is Caesar. Caesar had black in his mane and scars on his face and big, full belly. 
And off to the side was a younger um, but maned lion who was like a palomino. He was just golden. And our guide said, I think what has happened, and we will see later, is that Caesar is back to take his revenge on Brutus, who took over about four years ago. So Caesar is looking to get his harem back, and he's brought a son from somewhere else to help him with it. And nature in its full glory is that it's his job and his son's job to come kill all the young males and work their way up the hierarchy. Anything that's not their blood in the male line has to go. And then those females can be theirs. So anyway, I, w I thought that was a good revenge story. Yeah. Next storyteller, keeping it going. Jody J to the stage. Hey, Jody. So it's August last year, 2017. Provincetown, my hometown. Um, it's hotter than hell, and the streets are packed. My favorite thing to do in town is tool around on my bikes, multiple bikes. I have a collection of old Schwinns, and uh, it's just what I like to do. So I'm doing my normal, you know, 9.30, 10 o'clock from the West End to the East End, back to the West End, back to the East End. It's just kind of what I like to do. And all of a sudden, I get this pow, and something hits me in the eye, and I look over, and there is this young teenage boy laughing. And I'm like, okay, game on. <laughs> uh, I tend to be a little bit of a weirdo, and I really like that about myself. And so I decide that I'm just going to sort of torment this family for a bit. <laughs> so I slowly approach. I get off my bicycle, and I approach this tall teenager and his mom and dad and couple siblings and I just stare <laughs> and I don't say a word and I'm standing like this and I can tell they're getting nervous <laughs> so I get closer and now I'm literally about as close as this microphone to him. And I'm still not saying a word. And his mom says, he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. I still don't say anything. I just stare. And now the father says, you can go now. You can go now. Nope. <laughs> I get closer to the dad, who's probably 6'2", and I'm 5'2", and I said, nope. 
still not a word, haven't said a word. So they decide to sort of tool down the street. So I slowly, with my bike in hand, follow them. They go into a store. I wait outside. <laughs> this goes on for some time. <laughs> they come out of the store. The mom turns around, and there I am. I still have not spoken a word. So she's really getting frazzled at this point, and she's like, this is not, this is not, he, he didn't do anything wrong, you know, you're, you're not hurt, he didn't do anything wrong. And I still don't say a word. So I continued to follow them all the way from Town Hall down to Spiritus Pizza, which is probably, I don't know, four blocks, five blocks. And I'm loving every minute of this. <laughs> So they go into another store, and I duck out, and they come out, and there I am again. And at this point, they decide, okay, um, they're really getting nervous at this point. I could tell that the, the dad is like, you know, sort of, and the, and the son is, you know, and I just still have not said a word. So finally, we get down to where Spiritus is, and there is a little alcove where they have a ATM machine. Spiritus only takes cash. And so they decide they're going to go in and get pizza. Now, they don't see me because I've already ducked into this little alcove. <laughs> and so they go in, and they get their pizza, and they're getting ready to sit down on the little stoop, which everybody loves to do in the summertime. And then I reappear <laughs> from behind the ATM machine. <laughs> and I get really close, and I sit down next to them. <laughs> And the mother starts to get really angry, and she's yelling, he didn't do anything wrong, you can go now. And at this point, I look up and I said, it's not up to me. <laughs> and I do the little namaste, and I say, it's up to my higher power. I live here year-round. She doesn't know what to make of this. <laughs> and so the husband says, enough is enough. Nope. I say it again. It's not up to me. It's up to my higher power. And I live here year-round. <laughs> and at this point, the mom says, she pulls out her phone and she says, you're ruining our vacation. <laughs> We're calling the police. And I say, go right ahead, because it's not up to me. It's up to my higher power. I live here year-round. So the payback and the moral of this payback story is, if you don't want some weirdo townie from Provincetown to wreck your vacation, Teach your privileged white son to have some manners and say you're sorry and not apologize for him. Here we got tonight, Vera Scholl. So I prepared a story, but decided instead just to get revenge on every piece of shit I dated in my past. So 
I was going through my phone and pulled up some names and just short stories. So we'll start with, uh, with <laughs> Seth Martinez, who asked me if I needed that piece of cheese. He got fired. Uh, <laughs> Joey Duresta, who uh, got a blowjob from his friend's wife. Um, I'm going to stop here. That's not really why I'm here. But anyway, but it feels good. Mm. Anyway, so you... you <laughs> no, uh, that would be wrong. Talk to me after. So, um, they say never loan books, clothing, or money to friends because you will never see them again. I learned never borrow money from friends, um, and so I'm going to tell a story about that. Um, I had a kind of shitty childhood um, and uh, didn't have a lot of people in my life who kind of made me feel special or appreciated, and so maybe we can talk later? Okay. Uh, <laughs> but my mother's siblings were incredible. Um, I lived in Los Angeles for a little bit, and after moving back from college, I rekindled a great friendship with my mother's brother, and uh, he was at awesome. He was like a, a brother, a father-brother figure to me. And he and his wife, who was also amazing, uh, we used to go on family trips together. Uh, we used to go camping. We, used, we went to England. Uh, it was a really special friendship and relationship and one that I grew to love and continue to love. Um, after moving back, I got myself a, uh, a sweet gig and started making a boatload of money and thought, I'm going to get myself an apartment. Then I realized how much apartments were. Uh, and, um, and my uncle was like, I'll loan you the money to do this. And I had more than half the down payment. And I was like, all right. Uh, and so apparently he had taken, at, taken it out of an IRA, which was kind of crazy learning that. And apparently the interest rate was more than I had suspected um, in terms of paying back. Or maybe it wasn't an IRA. It was just whatever it was. If it was you know, a $10,000 loan, I had to pay him back like $14,000, which I didn't expect. Um, so, but I thought I was very grateful. And, um, and I thought I had this apartment. And it was a done deal. And it wasn't. And I didn't. So um, I was paying him back, and, uh, and then I lost my job, uh, this great job that I had had that would have afforded me this apartment. So God protects the stupid, because uh, I didn't get the apartment and get into a bunch of debt. Uh, but anyway, so I fell behind in a couple of payments, and it really put a lot of tension between me and my uncle. And it was really weird, because it was not something that I wanted or expected to happen, um, and things got really tense between me and his wife. And uh, to the tune of her saying some things that weren't so nice that I never would have anticipated coming from her uh, because we had such a close relationship. And then I learned that she was suffering from cancer. And a lot of this came from the stress that she was feeling. And, but I was still so angry at the way she treated me. And I got, you know, I got it, but I also, it was a family member and I, I just was really taken aback by the words that she had used. And, um, and so we, I, I 
tried my darndest to get past it, and I really couldn't. And then she passed away, and I found myself, uh, I found myself really sorry for not trying to make it right. Um, and at the end of the day, I did pay it back. Um, but it was, uh, it was a very unfortunate situation in our, in our relationship and friendship. And um, yeah, and I'm just, uh, feels kind of cathartic talking about it, but I realized that money should never come between family and friends. And, uh, and to this day, I have that right there that, you know, live in the now and keep a focus on the important stuff. And so I advise everybody to, to do that every day of your life. And that's it. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff and sound engineered by Mark Van Bork. To find out when your next opportunity to tell a story with the Mosquito is, follow us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever podcasts are found. You can also watch videos of our storytellers on the Mosquito Story Slams channel on YouTube. Remember to tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.